Well, as I said, we are uh, kind of wrapping up our little mini-series on evangelism. And this morning we want to look at uh, the examples of Jesus as we do so. Now, uh, just understand this is not an exhaustive look. We, we don't have time to look at every instance of Jesus's interactions with people and derive every little lesson. And so there is far more to glean uh, and far more to uh, pull out than we're going to cover this morning. Uh, obviously so. It's Jesus that we're talking about. It is God in the flesh, as we talked about last week, who is sharing the gospel with people. But I want to just with a few a few things, and you look at Jesus's interactions throughout Scripture, and just to introduce this topic, we realize that, that Jesus, not everyone that Jesus talked to came to the faith. That there was uh, this idea that that even though Jesus is God in the flesh, even though he can see into our hearts and he can share the gospel with us in a way that is perfectly tailored to our circumstance and our understanding and our personal need, not everybody that Jesus shared the gospel with came to faith. And so we shouldn't have the same expectation. It's an interesting thought when you consider uh, predestination and all of those things, by the way, that if Jesus would take the time to share the gospel with somebody, if they didn't come to faith, uh, those those things seem to me like an interesting thing to ponder. Uh, but that's an aside. This morning, as we as we kind of progress, I just want to look at our series objectives and just remind ourselves what we were, what we've been talking about. And and first, we talked about the authority of God's word. We understand that we stand on that authority; that it is the authority and that and the truth of God's word that is. For us, the message that we preach and the reason why we would preach it, it would be the uh, command that we find from Jesus himself, the commission that we have received to, to preach the gospel. Not only that, it is the message, that it constitutes for us the ins and outs of what the gospel is. And so we understand those things. We stand upon the authority of God's word. We let it instruct us and it interprets what's around us. And so we understand that. We we stand and we demonstrate the authority of God's Word. We started there, because that is the foundation of the gospel. We also talked about the spiritual focus, that while reform is important, it is a fruit and a byproduct of spiritual focus, of, of the actual salvation that people may receive in Christ. And so we spent some time talking about that. We're not looking for reform. That isn't the end goal. It will be a fruit of change in people's lives, uh, nor is it something that we shouldn't necessarily shy away from. But in regards to evangelism in this specific context, it's not the focus. And so we need to understand that. We're not trying to make converts to a way of thinking like the Pharisees. We're trying to make converts to Jesus Christ. We're trying to develop disciples. We also talked about the glory of God being the motivation. That everything that we would do, that the preaching of the gospel itself, our obedience to that our love of the lost, so on and so forth, whatever other motivation we may have and that we might cite for evangelizing, for preaching the gospel, is rooted first and foremost in glorification of God. And so we, we need to understand that, and we talked about that. Uh, we also talked about and looked at some tools uh, a couple weeks ago for evangelism, you know, whether it's the law being that schoolmaster, whether it's um, the Word of God, and we kind of separated those and using the Word of God as that um, 
big picture, so to speak, um, separate from the law, but instructive in and of itself. It's what Jesus used to confirm who he was to those that he would interact with. And so we, we see all of these tools that God has given, and we have them in our arsenal, our witness being another one of those tools, uh, which is obviously, as we talked about, distinct and separate from, from evangelism. Evangelism, preaching of the gospel is different than our witness, though the two may work in tandem. One should confirm the other. Our outward fruit, our witness, the way we would conduct ourselves, the things that we would say should be a confirmation of the truths of the gospel. And therefore, it's important that our life and the profession of our faith would be consistent. And this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus' example. We're going to look at some instances, and, and, and as I said, we're not, we're not going to exhaust everything that there is to look at in Jesus' example, but that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So... Um, that's all the slides I have. I didn't get any more made. But let's talk about a couple of things. Because in regard to Jesus' evangelism, and the same will be true for you and I, we'll have different audiences. We're going to have all kinds of people from all walks of life that we interact with. And so we need to look at those, some of the examples of Jesus dealing with people from different, different walks of life. Uh, but if we look at some general observations of Jesus' interactions with people throughout the Bible, some of the things that we very quickly find is that Jesus was uh, really unconcerned with artificial barriers. Uh, he, he, he crossed lines about, of social taboo and all of those kinds of things. Uh, and an example is in John chapter 4, uh, where Jesus is visiting with this Samaritan woman. First, she's a woman. They're there alone at the well, and that's sort of a no-no. But not only that, she's a Samaritan. And as we even look at that interaction, the Samaritan woman says, hey, why do you, being a Jew, ask me for anything? There's these social taboos, and Jesus purposed in Matthew uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, John chapter 4, he purposed to go through Samaria. There was an intent and a purpose in his passing through there. Um, in John chapter 4, uh, beginning in Verse uh, 4, he says, he must needs go through Samaria. Jesus knew that there was an interaction that needed to take place. And while the Jews and the Samaritans really didn't get along and they kind of hated each other, and the Jews would, even though going through Samaria was oftentimes the shortest route, they would go around because they didn't want to interact. Um, and so he crossed those social barriers with, the Samaritan woman. He also did that with the Samaritan, excuse me, the publicans. Remember, the, the publicans are Roman loyalists, right? They were people who were put in charge effectively of collecting taxes on behalf of Rome, but they would be Jewish people. In fact, some of Jesus' disciples, some of the people that wrote the Gospels, were publicans. They were hated. You, you remember that as we look at things, the Pharisees in their interactions with Jesus, they called them publicans and sinners. Right? So, so in their minds, publicans have this very special and unique category of being extremely sinful above and beyond just a regular sinner. Yet here is Jesus, and he keeps company with them. In Matthew chapter 9, for instance, if you turn there with me, or, or, or we're only going to read one verse, so you can just write it down. Matthew 9, 9. Uh, he tells us, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew 
sitting at the receipt of custom. So here he is, Matthew. He's a publican. He, he's a tax collector for Rome, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he says unto him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. I mean, this is the same Matthew that would write the gospel of Matthew, who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, chapter 19, we find a, a man of short stature, little Zacchaeus, who, as Jesus is passing through, climbs up in a tree so that he might see above the crowds, and we find that he is also a publican. And as Jesus passed through, I'm going to begin in verse 1 of Luke 19. As Jesus passed and entered through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was, of the, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And there's a reason that these publicans were rich, because they were skimming off the top. If the tax was, you know, two, shil two shillings, they're going to charge you two and a half. And they're going to take their cut. And so that's exactly what's happened, and Zacchaeus is furthered himself in that regard financially doing those kinds of things. And so he's he's a chief among them, right? He, he's sort of over other publicans, uh, and we find that to be the case. And here is Jesus as he sees Zacchaeus, who has climbed up into the sycamore tree uh, as he went by. He, he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to come to your house. Right? We, we all hear the song in our head, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and... <laughs> But he tells him to come down, and as he eats with him, as he keeps company with this publican, with this person who is taboo throughout all of Israel, Zacchaeus is struck. And he says in verse 8, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus responds, this day is salvation come to the house. Zacchaeus comes to faith, and there is a reform that takes place as a result of that. But here he is, Jesus willing to converse and to interact with these sinners, with these people that others would write off. And we see Jesus confronting the Pharisees. We see him confronting the priests, religious people. Uh, he heals on the Sabbath. He, he, uh, he and his disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath just as they walk through the field and they collect the grain to eat. Uh, all kinds of things. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees because they've made the law of God of no tradition. That is, they engage with, with the people around them. They're more concerned about bringing them to reform than they are about bringing them to God. They're more concerned about their traditions and the rules that they hold than they are about honoring God, bringing Him glory through obedience to His law. And Jesus confronts them about that, which is not something that you do. They're effectively... The Pharisees are not the people in charge, right? But they are the religious elite. They're well-studied, they're scholars, and they're extremely powerful and well-liked amongst the people. So while they may not be the people in charge, they do have people in strategic places. Uh, Nicodemus is a, an example. He was a Pharisee, but he's also uh, on the Sanhedrin. He was a ruler in Israel. We're going to look at Nicodemus this morning, that interaction with Jesus. But, but we see these things, and Jesus is willing to confront them. It doesn't matter who they are. And sometimes it feels as if we encounter people who are in a position of authority or they're in a position uh, of recognition, whatever it may be, and there is some apprehension. 
there's some social taboo that we who would, uh, whether it's our, our boss, right, that they're, they're in a position above us, so therefore we wouldn't share the gospel, whatever apprehension may come with that. Maybe there's fear associated with that. We might lose our job. Who knows? Understand all of those things. I mean, I'm right there with you, but all I'm saying is that in Jesus's interactions, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from, what side of the tracks you grew up on. He's going to share the gospel with you. And the same should be true of us, that nobody anywhere from any background would be above or below, in our estimation, their need to be saved. Jesus is here preaching not only to people who are clearly outside of faith, but he's preaching to those who are religious as well. We're going to talk about that. It's one of the groups of people. In Jesus' interactions with people, we find that he talks about sin. He confronts them about sin. But he doesn't confront them about sin in a, in a way that is condemning. Here he is. He, is, he also talks a lot about judgment. And I, and I want to talk about these two together. In John chapter 9, for example. John chapter 9, verse 39. <clears throat> Jesus tells his audience, he says, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and they which see, see might be made blind. In other words, Jesus says, listen, I'm coming into the world for judgment. And, 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 and he's talking about those who perceive themselves to see, like the Pharisees. We've got this religion thing all figured out. We know the things to do and the things not to do. And we're happy to have you see us doing the things that we're supposed to do. But they, they think that they see. Yet they are cheap among those who would miss Jesus, who would be blind to who he really was. Yet he opens the eyes of those uh, who would be in desperate need for him. Jesus said, I didn't come to save those who have a physician, but those who are sick and in need. Sitting in the publican's table to the Pharisees, by the way. But as Jesus talks about judgment, we realize that there, is, there are two things to, to talk about here. right? Because Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, that I'm not here condemning them. I've come to save them in John 3, 17, which is a true statement. But he also came and, and all judgment has been committed into his hands so there's a judgment coming and part of jesus's interaction and discussion with people in regard to judgment and sin is that there is a judgment associated with sin the consequence of sin and so as he interacts with people he makes that known and i want you to realize that as you go and you do your personal study and you should do more per, more study about jesus's interactions with people and, and just make some of your own conclusions and just glean more and more that there is to glean. One thing that we need to realize is the context. And then when I say the context, those that Jesus is sharing with have a unique and a specific background. They're by and large Jewish people or Samaritan people, and they have a very similar background. They're familiar with the law. There are times when Jesus directly answers questions or interjects points of the law. In fact, the entire almost the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is clarification. It's the giving of the spirit of the law. And so as Jesus talks about it and he interacts with uh, these people, that is a key thing, that they, they understand the law. They know what it says, but they've missed the point of it. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment as we talk about righteousness. But Jesus talked about judgment. In, Matt, in John chapter 5, verses 22 through 27, 
Uh, for the jo father judges no man, but is committed all judgment unto the son, that all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. He that honors not the son honors not the father, which has sent him. Right? He, he goes on and he discusses his, his purpose and reason for this judgment. There is a judgment coming. There is an, a consequence associated with sin. And that is true for every person that has ever lived. From Adam and Eve, who were told that, hey, in the day that you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat, you will die. And the same is true for us. The same is true for everyone that we would share the gospel with. And we need to understand that Jesus was fine talking about sin and judgment. And in today's world, where offense is to be avoided at all costs, those are topics that people withdraw from. Yet if we're going to use the tools that God has given us to preach the gospel and stand upon the truth to do so and follow the example of Jesus Christ himself, we're going to talk about sin and judgment. We're not likely to be popular for it, but that doesn't change the fact that it is a needed conversation. Jesus also talked about righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, if we turn there again, here he is. On the, the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, is where Jesus talks that. He's talking to the crowds of people. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Uh, and as I said, really, a good chunk of the Sermon on the Mount is, is clarifying, giving insight into the law, the spirit of the law that God has given. Jesus begins in verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come to destroy, I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And when Jesus says fulfill, I want you to think about this. There is, in, in theological terms, there's active and passive obedience that people talk about in regard to Jesus Christ. Right? He came, he submitted himself to the plan of God to pay for sin. That's passive sub submission. He was obedient in the sense that he went to the cross. But not only that, Jesus is here telling us, and we, we need to not miss the point, that he was actively obedient. He chose. The Bible tells us that he always did that which pleased the Father. Jesus was actively engaged in righteousness, in obedience to the law, in not breaking it. He was actively engaged in not sinning, if I can just say it that simply. He was perfectly righteous. He was without spot. He was without blemish. He had no sin. He was tempted in every way that you and I have ever been tempted, yet he was without sin. And it's something for us to talk about. When Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, not only is he talking about the pictures that were painted in the law and his substitution of it, his perfect sacrifice, but his perfect obedience to it. Jesus never broke the law. He was perfectly righteous, which is something for us to keep in mind as Jesus is talking about righteousness he says, he continues in verse 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle, and those are like uh, diacritical marks. I mean, they're, they're little things that would tell you how to phrase something, how to, how to pronounce it. Some of the smallest parts of language, yet Jesus says, not a single jot or tittle will move or, or will be lost from the law. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it. Until everything will be fulfilled, he says in verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness, so here he is, he's talking about the law. He's talking about keeping the law, and he's talking about righteousness. That is the context. It says, so unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's an interesting thought. Here are the Pharisees who are so zealous that their inception as a group, as a, as a belief system, that uh, to, to keep the law of God about personal righteousness, that they would create all of these other laws in an effort to not break any of those. And God says, hey, don't work on the Sabbath. So therefore, we're not going to kindle fires. We're not going to do all of these things. We're, we're not going to do anything that would resemble work. Right? We, we, a lot of these things that we talk about, that we look at and we, we hear referenced as laws, they, they were traditions. If we go back and look at the law that God gave, it wasn't nearly as restrictive as the Pharisees made it. But that was their heart behind it. While they may have been sincerely motivated, their righteousness, because what are they becoming, what are they interested in keeping today in Jesus' time? Well, their righteousness is tied up in keeping all of these traditions, and Jesus confronted them. You're right. Your traditions make the law of God of no effect. That is a different standard of righteousness. And so what he's telling his audience, who would be familiar, this Jewish audience, is that, listen, you guys think of the Pharisees as being righteous because they're zealous about the law. They know it, and they keep it. They keep their traditions in addition to it. Jesus said, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you must be perfect. Just like Jesus was perfect, you have to be perfect to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talked about sin, he talked about judgment, and he also talked about righteousness. And in his discussion about righteousness, it was clearly referencing the absolute need that mankind has for righteousness outside of himself. That even the Pharisees, who were the elite of the righteous bunch of your workspace religions, it wasn't enough. And we need to understand that because as we talk to people, we are surrounded by friends, family, and neighbors, coworkers, whoever it may be, that are stuck in a earning their righteousness mindset. As we evangelize people, just as Jesus confronted them about righteousness and what the standard is and how we all fall short, there's none righteous. No, not one, the Bible tells us. It breaks down. When we talk about sin, righteousness, and judgment, when we talk about those three things, which, by the way, Jesus said this is the three things that the Holy Spirit is going to instruct the world about, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because he was an example and the fulfillment of all of them. So we need to talk about sin, righteousness, and judgment as we share the gospel. All of it being illustrative of our inability, of our need for Christ. In addition to those things, in addition to sin, righteousness, and judgment, in addition to Jesus uh, not worrying about any of those taboos and, and social lines, crossing them all, he showed compassion to his audience. You know, the Greek and the Hebrew word that's translated compassion, I don't know what they, how to pronounce them. So just, they, they mean to have mercy, to feel sympathy, or to have pity. 
And we see Jesus in his interactions with people. He exemplified these characteristic, this characteristic of, of God, his compassion. In John chapter 11, for instance, John chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, Lazarus has just died, who's a friend of Jesus's. And as Jesus has been called and he tarries, he knows that Lazarus is sick, he tarries, he waits. And he has purpose in doing that because he's demonstrating the ability to give life, which is an important concept. So, so he, he has purpose in, in tarrying. But as he comes, verse 33 in John chapter 11, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. So here are the sisters, Mary uh, uh, and Martha, Mary coming to Jesus, and she's in tears because her brother Lazarus has died. And, and Jesus sees that, and he sees those who are mourning with her, the rest of you know his friends, those things, the, the other Jews that are there, not only that, but the Jews would, they had mourners that would come and mourn with you. I mean, they were unafraid to be there. And so they'd show up and you were, they were all weeping together. And Jesus is here and he's troubled. He's groaned in the spirit. And he said, where have you laid them? And he said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. The shortest verse there in the Bible, one that we can all memorize, John 11.35, Jesus wept. It's two words. But here he is. He has pity, compassion. He sympathizes with the heartache of those that he is there with. And as he raises Lazarus from the dead, as he continues on, he talks about uh, the resurrection, all of these things. He, he, there's an illustration of the gospel and of this new life associated with Christ. Not only do we see Jesus exemplify compassion there, uh, we see that many of the healings of Jesus were motivated by compassion. That was specifically the reason. In Matthew chapter 14, for instance, uh, here is a group of people. Jesus is, um, he's crossed, let's see, Matthew 14, 14. Yeah, he's just gotten off the ship. They've crossed the, and I can't remember what body of water it is there. I apologize. But he gets off the boat, and he sees in verse 14, and Jesus went forth, and he saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. So here's Jesus, and he's motivated by compassion to heal their sick. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, there's a, an instance where Jesus individually deals with somebody in, in the same regard. Mark chapter 1, Mark's gospel is unique in that it, it doesn't begin with who God is. It doesn't begin with any lineage of Jesus from any perspective. It just starts. Hey, this is a gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, it says, but then it just begins. And, and immediately in the first chapter, here we are reading about miracles that Jesus worked. And he said, uh, beginning in verse 40 of Mark chapter 1, and there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make me clean. And you'll remember that by God's own prescription, that the lepers had to be outside the camp. They had, they had all kinds of things that they had to go through. They were separated because it was a, something that, that spread by contact. And so they isolated them. They quarantined them according to God's, uh, God's prescription in the Old Testament. And, and there were methods of of dealing with it and healing it and all of those kinds of things. And then they would there was a uh, ceremony to uh, 
uh, come and, and show yourself to the priest. Hey, I'm clean, and you go through the offerings and everything that God has prescribed. They weren't cast out forever, but if you were if 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 you had leprosy, you were going to be quarantined for at least a period of time, sometimes decades. I, I mean, it, it may take somebody a very long time, and sometimes indefinitely. But here again, it's Jesus crossing social taboos, right? This is, you don't deal with lepers. Because if you do, you're unclean. Now you have to go offer your own sacrifices. But here is Jesus doing it, uh, dealing with them. Here's this man, he comes to him. When Jesus moved with compassion, verse 41, put forth his hand and touched him. He could have just spoken it, but he literally puts forth his hand. He demonstrates this outreaching of himself to the person, lays his hand on him and says, I will be thou clean. And his leprosy immediately departs from him, and he was cleansed, it says. Right? Here is Jesus in his compassion, moving toward those. He sees the people of Israel in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, as he begins his Sermon on the Mount, and he's motivated by compassion to interact with the people, and some of this is by inference here, but Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went into the mountain, and when he was set, his, his disciples came unto him. In other words, Jesus sees the people as a sh sheep without a shepherd, and he talks about that. And, he, and he, in John chapter 10, he talks about himself as the good shepherd. Here are the religious leaders of his time, the chief priests, uh, the priests, all of those, even the Pharisees to whatever degree, and rather than giving them truth, which is what we need because the truth is what sets us free, Jesus would say. They lead them astray. They tie them up in bondage. So here is Jesus motivated by compassion to give them clarity in regard to his law. We look at Jesus' interactions, and these are common things. These are things that we should adopt, that we see that there are those people who are surrounding us who are without clarity in regard to scripture and it doesn't mean that i need to knock on their door when they open it just both barrels just whack them across the face with it you know what it means is that in compassion just as jesus did there's going to be some conversation that we're going to share the gospel from a perspective that is understandable to them that we're going to illustrate it from the word of god as we use it as the tool that it is we're going to talk about the things that we need to be talked about sin and righteousness and judgment If that's how Jesus did it, then that's how we should do it. And we shouldn't lose heart when people don't come to Christ. As I said in the very beginning, not everyone that Jesus shared the gospel with came to Christ. Just is not the case. The vast majority of people that Jesus talked to did not come to faith as far as we know. But he talked to them anyway. Let's talk about some of the audience that Je some of the audiences that Jesus had because I think for us it's helpful because we're going to deal with the same kinds of people. And first I want to talk about the religious people that Jesus would share the gospel with. Religious people. People that would be spiritual, people who would ascribe some higher power, whatever it may be, religious people. Maybe they're in a false religion, maybe they're just the new agey type, whatever it may be. It might even be people that we attend church with or that we would expect to know the gospel, who but they've missed it. Religious people. 
as Jesus has been resurrected, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, looking at Jesus's interactions, uh, excuse me, uh, looking at some of the methods and the tools, the tools rather, that, that we have, and the Word of God being one of them. And as we separated that out and we we looked at Jesus's interactions with these disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, right? Here they are, they're disciples. They're people that walked with Christ. They were with him. But as, as Jesus interacts with them, as he hears their report of everything that's been going on, and they're talking about all these things and their interpretation of it, Jesus says, you have little faith. He's like, you've missed it. You didn't understand everything that I was doing and everything that was being done to illustrate you didn't understand the things that I was saying. Let me explain it to you again. And what did he do? He went to the word of God. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, O fool, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and at the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And all I'm saying is that there may be even those in Christian circles or who grew up in Christian households, whatever it may be, who have missed it. There's a disconnect for whatever reason. There's a, an intellectual understanding of the facts and the events that took place, but there is no heart change. There is no faith that has led to salvation. And we have the very tool of the Word of God to interact with them just as Jesus did. I don't know him personally, but you, uh, I was listening to a sermon this last week and the guy was, uh, he was actually talking about evangelism, but it was in a different context. Uh, but as he's talking about evangelism, he, he came, he, he briefly talked about Ray Comfort, who, if you don't know who Ray Comfort is, he's this guy from Australia who moved to California a long time ago. He goes out on this, uh, he has a ministry, Living Waters, um, have training courses, how to evangelize and those kinds of things. And relatively solid, don't get me wrong, solid. But he goes out and he makes these videos and 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 of, of himself preaching the gospel to people on the street. And and it can be inspiring because uh here it is. It's it's just not that hard. Right? So so it is a resource. But this guy he said, listen, Ray Comfort is the most annoying person to travel with because everywhere you go, he talks to every single person. And he shares the gospel with every single person. He says, we'll we be sitting there. He's already witnessed to the person that sat us down. He's already witnessed to the waitress or the waiter several times. He says, he's probably snuck into the kitchen and talked to them. Somebody comes in the door. They've just been sat down. He's over at their table now preaching the gospel to them. He literally talks to everyone. And in the same way, it doesn't matter who they are. He says, I took him to an evangelism conference. And he evangelized every person that came in the door. Like these people were purposing to go and learn more about Jesus Christ or, or, or how to evangelize well. And what is the first thing they're getting? The gospel. Because they might have missed it. They may have some false assurance or hope because they're going through the works. They may be there literally to learn how to be a better evangelist because they're trying to merit favor with God. Don't take it for granted. They may have missed it. We're going to talk to religious people of all kinds. And sometimes religious people are in Christian circles. Don't take that for granted. 
Jesus also talked to those who were in religious circles, but they were not in Christian circles. Right, whether they were the Pharisees, whether they were the Sadducees, whoever they may have been, uh, the Samaritan woman, there were religious circles that Jesus would deal with. We are surrounded by people who are in religion, who are stuck in it, all kinds of religions. Yet Jesus talked to them, and he used effectively the same tools and the same methods to reach them that we would use. When Jesus talked to the talked to the Pharisees, he confronted them about their external focus. He talked to them about sin, he talked to them about righteousness, he talked to them about judgment. He used the Word of God to interact with them. He used the very tools that we talked about a couple of weeks ago to correct their false understandings, to, uh, and I hesitate to use the word, to attack their vain religion. And I, and I say attack, and I hesitate to use the word because that isn't the goal. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to squash somebody's religion. We're trying to expose them. We're trying to clarify for them Jesus Christ. That's the goal. If we're just there to squash their religion, we've missed the mark, and we're going to miss the mark, and they're going to miss the message. But if we talk about sin, righteousness, and the judgment, inevitably that's going to address, well, what does your religion say about righteousness? How is righteousness obtained? How, how does that compare to the Pharisees and their righteousness? Yet yeah, Jesus said that your righteousness had to be greater than that, so on and so forth. Right? We have all of these instruments. We talk about sin. Well, that's the, that's the reason we all need the gospel. We can all agree on that. Most religions do. That's why they're doing something. We understand sin. We all know there's a judgment. We have something to be saved from. So really, it's a discussion about righteousness. They were focused on the externals, the reform of their way, uh, uh, their way of doing things. Jesus confronted them for leading the people to false security and not to God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are the blind leading the blind, and you're both going to fall in the ditch. You don't know me. You don't understand me. You don't know the gospel, yet here you are leading these people astray. He accused the Pharisees of being empty sepulchers, those that had they were tombs with nothing inside them. There was nothing but death. Just waiting for them to pass away, and then there's there's no hope, because it's appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. We would probably do well to have some information and some little bit of study and familiarity with the predominant religions in our area, so that as we interact with them, we're able to talk effectively about sin and righteousness and judgment. Know where they stand about it a little bit. But more importantly, we know what the Bible says about it. That's, that's, where, that's where we're standing, Bond. That's why we started this whole series with the authority of God's Word. The argument isn't with me. Your argument is with what God has said. And they may try to explain it away, but you know what? The truth will set them free. So we have religious people that Jesus interacted with, that he shared the gospel with. We see our friends, neighbors, families, co-workers, whatever it may be, we see that things are looking relatively good for them. We have to realize that the spiritual need, the spiritual focus of evangelism has not been satisfied in their life. 
There is reform in their life. There is some measure of restraint as they work to obey the laws that they've given themselves, just like the Pharisees. But what they don't have is saving faith in Jesus Christ. Don't take it for granted that they're content. Don't take it for granted that they're that they're happy. Don't take it for granted that, that they're not desperately looking for God. Because they probably are. And they're unwilling to ask you because their religion doesn't let them cross the line, the, those social taboo lines that we, by illustration of Jesus Christ himself, should be crossing. We need to be talking to religious people. The one thing that we do know is that they need Christ. Jesus talked to them. And he used the very same tools that we talked about to minister to them. Now, Jesus also talked to leaders, and I separate the religious people from leaders, because they and they might be same, and as we're going to look at Nicodemus, he was both. But there are leaders, there are those who are in authority, uh, positions of authority, whether they're over us or we're just associated with them, whatever they may be. Jesus didn't care, and he talked to them too. And in fact, in Nicodemus's story in John chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, uh, we know that Nicodemus came to Jesus. The, the Holy Spirit had obviously been working in him already. And so he came with, uh, with some recognition of who Jesus was. But what I want you to notice is that in Jesus' interaction with him, he immediately goes to the heart of the matter. And I want to just explain. Nicodemus, it says in, in verse 1, was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus and a ruler of the Jews. So there's two things that we know about Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's familiar with the law of God. He's outwardly righteous. He is a guy who is devoted to, to keeping rules. But not only that, it says that he was a leader, in, a ruler of the Jews. Most commentators agree that, that, that Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. And all that means is that, uh, that he was part of the, 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 the legal system. Right. So in each town, in Numbers chapter 11, let me just give you a little bit of history here. Numbers chapter 11, um, people are there in Israel. Uh, they're bringing all their problems to, to Moses so that he might judge them. Chapter 11, verse 16, And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they might stand there with thee. And, and all of this is to say that, that Moses can't judge everything. And so we're going to make this hierarchy of, of a legal system. And that's what's, that's what's happening here. And we're going to have the great Sanhedrin. I'm going to refer to it that just to distinguish it from other Sanhedrins, because any town... In Jesus' day, any town of 120 people had a Sanhedrin. They had people, and, and that's sort of the number that wasn't necessarily prescribed anywhere that I can find in the Old Testament. I could be wrong about that, and I just missed it. But by tradition, at least in Jesus' day, 120 people, you would have a formal Sanhedrin. Smaller towns may not. If you had just a little village, you may not. But there was some ruling number of people that would decide these cases based on the law of God, based on on those things. And so here is he here is Nicodemus who is a member of the 
uh, of the great Sanhedrin, pr probably so. I don't know that we know with absolute certainty, uh, but it specifically says he's a ruler of the Jews. Most commentators agree. So take it for what it's worth. If he isn't and we're wrong, I don't know that it changes what we're about to talk about. So just keep that in mind. He's part of the great Sanhedrin or effectively the Supreme Court. Right? You've run it through the system over here in your little Sanhedrin. Uh, we couldn't come to any agreement. We, we needed to pass it up the chain. And so you, you work your way up and you end up at the, the great Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. Nicodemus is one of these. It is before this very group of people that Jesus would stand as he's falsely accused. And we know that that to be the case. So here, here it is. Um, you can reference Deuteronomy 16, 18. That's where it talks about in every, in every city, make, make people to rule. So Deuteronomy 16, 18. Um, the great Sanhedrin had some specific authority that didn't exist in others. They, uh, it was, they, they could try the king of Israel. The, the great Sanhedrin could try the king, which no other Sanhedrin could do. Um, they were the ones who could extend the boundary of the temple or of Jerusalem itself. Uh, had to be an act of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it, so they're they're a relatively they're a formidable group. They're leaders. They're rulers in Israel. And here is Nicodemus, one of them. And Jesus doesn't matter doesn't matter that that's the case. That this is who he is. Jesus is willing to talk to this man. Period. And and in his interactions with him, he gets right to the heart of things. He doesn't. Re reply, he says, hey, we know that you must be of God because no one can do the things that you are unless you be of God. And Jesus has answered to him in verse 3, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot sing the kingdom of God. He doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't even give, give thought to what Nicodemus has just said. He just gets to the heart of it. Now, from, remember, Nicodemus is familiar with the law. I mean, th this is his bread and butter. This is what he does. And as he talks to him about it, he talks about, he, he uses that illustration of being born again, this death to self, that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, right? that it's sinful, that it's wrong, that it's corrupted, which is a, an understanding that Nicodemus would have, and that what is born of the spirit is spirit, that it is something that is rejuvenated, which is something that he would, and also a principle that he would be familiar with. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, there's, uh, none righteous, no, not one. Romans three twenty six as well. Right, this is this is where he gets, and, and we're talking about being born again. That's what he's talking about: this death of self and this birth to God. That that in Romans chapter six that we would be laid down. That illustration of baptism. That we're dead and we're raised in newness of life. This is everything that Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus. This is immediately where he goes. And he uses these Old Testament illustrations. He uses the Word of God, things that Nicodemus would be familiar with, to illustrate. He says in verse 14, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And you'll remember the story that here is Israel, they're murmuring against God, and God sends these fiery serpents, and when you're bit, you, not only do you die, but it's a painful death. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and says, Lord, how do, what do we do? And the people are begging, what do we do? Moses, go and pray to God for us. And so he does, and he asks, and God says, listen, take some brass, make a brazen serpent, make a copy of one of these things, 
and put it on a pole and put it up on the hill. And if anybody is bitten, all they have to do is look. Isn't it interesting that here we have Satan being illustrated as, as, as the serpent in Genesis. And by his bite, mankind is lost. And not only do we die, but we die this agonizing death. Yet here it is, he who, we, we need more of the same. We need more of what God has deemed to be sin completely on our behalf, Jesus Christ, so that we could be declared righteous. And by faith in that, that substitutionary death, by looking to that serpent that's been placed up there, they're healed. And by us looking to Jesus Christ, who was lifted up on our behalf, we are healed. We're granted eternal life. So the main message, assuming Nicodemus' understanding of the law, is that man is sick with sin and therefore condemned, like Israel in the wilderness was condemned. And God has provided the cure for our sin, His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says in verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. And you think about who Nicodemus is. I mean, his job is to condemn those to judgment who need it. Jesus says, listen, you need to understand this is what God has done. He didn't send me to condemn the world. He sent me to be the sacrifice just like that serpent in the wilderness. Something on their behalf that they couldn't do themselves. He sent me to be that. As we look at those that Jesus interacted with and, and we, we see those illustrations, talk to religious people, he talked to leaders in Israel. He was unafraid to cross lines that we would maybe ourselves be hesitant to cross. Here's the thing. If you're just committed to evangelizing people and you're out there on the street, you don't know if you're talking to a religious person. You don't know if you're talking to a leader or to somebody that would be over you in some other context. You don't know any of those things. All you know is that I am here to share the gospel. Why? For the glory of God. So that he may be known, that he might be exalted and every, everywhere that I go, he would be recognized. Jesus also talked to regular people, people that we would classify as regular, people like you, people like me. They have jobs, they have families, they have concerns, they have all kinds of things in this life that we would identify with. He talked to regular people. The Sermon on the Mount was given largely to crowds of common people. He took the time to clarify to them what he had given, the spirit of the law. He confronts the crowds with teaching about the nature of their sin, and he removes a justification for it. Remember some of the things that Jesus clarified, right? That if you, if you hate your brother, you murder them in your heart. But the commandment says, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that if you hate your brother, the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, let me clarify, this is what God was intending, that if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Right? There is a, a clarification of the things of God. The spirit of the law is given and clarified. And what that does is it removes from us justification. Well, I'm not really that bad of a person. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. I've never done any of those things. Yet, 
we probably all have in whatever degree by Jesus's own standard, by God himself, God in the flesh, by his own explanation, we have. When we begin to look at those things that way, the reason that Jesus took the time to clarify in his compassion to these regular people is because they didn't understand. They missed the mark. So as they stand there in the crowd listening to Jesus preach, and they look at this guy over here who's just a sinner, and this guy over here who's terrible because I know saw him beating his wife the other day or whatever. Saw this guy stealing three weeks ago. Whatever the case may be, it's easy to feel good about ourselves. We justify that I'm not as bad as that guy. When we're talking to regular people, they're just like you and I. And I think that for many of us, what we don't understand is that our witness, because part of our witness is that we realized how sinful we were. We realize that, yeah, no, I, I have held, I have hated people. I have committed murder by God's standard. I have lusted. I have committed adultery by God's standard. That those things that Jesus would clarify and would instruct these normal people in are great things for us to instruct and to talk to them about. They help us to illustrate sin, righteousness, and judgment. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. This is a one on one interaction. She's a regular person. She's out there getting water like she has to every day. They're at the well drawing it up just like everyone else has to do. She has tasks that have to be accomplished. And as Jesus interacts with her, and this whole interaction, she comes, she draws the water, and Jesus says, hey, give me a drink. And she says, well, why would you, a Jew, ask me a Samaritan for anything? Jesus said, listen, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me for living water. And I think one of the insightful things that Jesus does here in this little interaction for you and I to take heed of is that the illustration that he used was very familiar. In fact, it was exactly what she was doing. The way that he entered into the gospel conversation is to simply take the water that she was already drawing and use that as the illustration of life. And she says, well, water. And Jesus says, well, listen, if you drink this water, You'll be thirsty again. You'll have to come back tomorrow and you'll have to get more water because you're going to drink it up and your needs will not be satisfied. The water that I give you will always satisfy. You'll never thirst again. Obviously, Jesus is speaking metaphorically and she picks up on that fact. Jesus then confronts her about sin as he talks with her. He, 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 he says, go and get your husband. Now, obviously, Jesus had some insight that we may not have. But he confronts her about the very normative circumstances. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right, you don't. Because there's been five guys, and the one that you're with now is definitely not your husband. I mean, she's an adulteress. There, is, there are problems in this woman's life. She's a regular person. She's got sin that she struggles with. She has daily needs. She's very interested in this living water. Why? Because I don't want to come to the well all the time anymore. From the very practical standpoint, she's interested. And then when she begins to perceive that Jesus is something more than just some guy who's walking along, she says, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she gets to the, she brings up the spiritual conversation herself. We worship here in Mount Gerizim. You worship over there. Where should we worship? And Jesus says, listen, 
the day comes when we're not going to worship there or here, but those who worship God is going to worship Him in spirit and in truth. She brings up the spiritual conversation. Why? Because he's illustrated truth, righteousness, sin, righteousness, and judgment in the conversation. In the metaphors that he chose to use, in the way that he interacted with her, he talked about those things. She brought up the spiritual conversation. Remember when we started this, we talked about some statistics because we introduced the topic that, that all of the people that have Christian friends, friends that profess to be Christians, their friends do not talk to them. They're open to and even willing to have the conversation, but their friends don't breach the topic. And when we looked at the statistics that people would cite about why we don't share the gospel with people, chief among them is fear. I don't know if it's fear of losing that friend, fear of offense, whatever it may be, but we're more concerned about ourselves than we are about the glory of God. We're more concerned about ourselves than we would be about that person who may need Christ. Yet here is Jesus, and it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, he's going to interact with you, he's going to teach you, he's going to preach the gospel to you. He's going to illustrate sin, righteousness, and the judgment. Those things are consistently throughout everything, and he does so from the word of God. We stand upon the same truth. But the completion of it, we have the benefit of the Old and the New Testament that Paul and the other apostles who were sent out as those missionaries to start the church, who regularly shared the gospel themselves, did not have. We have the clarification of the New Testament about the Old. We can preach the gospel with great clarity. The context that we may illustrate with, while they may, may, not, may not be drawing water from a well, there's some parallel that we can tap. You know, as Jesus talked about, talked to his disciples, and he said, listen, when they bring you before the councils, and this is just before he's taken to be crucified, one of the last things that he ends up teaching his disciples. When they take you and they bring you before the councils, when they bring you before the Sanhedrin, those who are going to judge you, don't take any thought about what you're going to say, he says. He says, the Spirit will tell you what you need to say. I realize that's in a very specific context. That's in the specific context of being brought before those who are going to judge you. And, and so to that end, right, we need to understand that that's a specific context. There are two things that I want to derive from that as we kind of conclude this morning. As we look at our sharing the gospel, our preaching of the gospel, as we use the tools that God has given us to, to interact with people as Jesus did, whoever they may be, wherever they may be from. Number one, we know that the Holy Spirit, because God has told us, Jesus himself told us, has already been working or maybe just working in their heart about sin, righteousness, and the judgment. That those things are familiar to every person who has ever existed and every person who ever will exist. And all that means for you and me is that every person we're ever going to talk to knows something about those three things. And so in some sense, we don't have to take a lot of thought about what we're going to say if we're familiar with those basic topics. On the other hand, we have the commands of Scripture telling us that we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. That we can clearly and biblically articulate the truths of the gospel, that we can clearly and biblically articulate 
our witness, what we have received in Christ, who he is, the righteousness that is available in him, and why there is a need for that righteousness. In that sense, we need to prepare, we need to take action, and we need to train to be able to effectively share those things. We are the front line. We are the ones that God himself has commissioned before he left this earth to share the gospel. We have a, the honor of being used to establish the church of God. And it isn't new to you or to me or to anyone modern that we would be scared, or that we'd be fearful, or that we would have some apprehension or concern about all kinds of things in relation to sharing the gospel with people. There have been concerns about it from the very beginning. In fact, the very concerns that existed in the nature of people leaving Jerusalem because of the persecution was one of the chief ways that God would spur on the spread of the gospel. Because Christians had to leave and they had to take it with them, yet they didn't stop, even though they knew they the possibility of persecution existed, they're going to preach the gospel. And the same is true for you and I. There is a possibility of persecution. There's a possibility, possibility of being mocked, of being teased, made fun of, being uh, of losing jobs. There's a possibility of all of those things. But none of those things, in the grand scheme of things, is in our control anyway. If God is sovereign, is he, if he is providentially acting in your life and my life, our only obligation is to bring him glory. We trust him for everything. Whether we are actively trusting or whether we are passively trusting, we trust him for everything. We're simply counting on the fact that I can see the plan when I'm walking by sight, as opposed to, God, you're in full control. And when we look at it from the perspective of glorifying God, when we look at it from the perspective of God is his sovereign anyway, there really isn't any reason. There really isn't any reason that we wouldn't. There is nothing to be fearful of because God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? And I say that having been scared and having not shared the gospel, fully understanding exactly what I'm saying to you because I'm saying it to myself, having dealt with the same fears, and fully expecting that I'm going to deal with the same fears. But hopefully as I go forward, I'm, and hopefully as you go forward, we, re, we have grace to operate in and through those fears. For the glory of God, for the salvation of souls, for the establishment of the church of God, that we would be the evangelist that God has clearly called us to be. No matter who it is, no matter where it is, no matter what circumstance they may be in and what circumstance we may be in, the context doesn't matter. The message is the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Lord, and I pray that as we shortly and probably very inadequately look at Jesus' interactions with people, uh, Lord, and very loosely tie those to some of the tools that we talked about a few weeks ago, God, I pray that your spirit would fill in all the gaps. That you would take the things that we have talked about the last several weeks, that you would bring them together into a very solid understanding of evangelism. And then, Lord, by your grace, and we understand it's only by your grace, 
that you, Father, would move in our hearts and minds, that you would quicken us to be those who would readily share the gospel with people. Lord, we thank you for the message. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the salvation that we have received, Lord, and I pray that as we ponder through those things, as we consider the salvation that we will receive, that it would be a, a time of forming, as it were, our witness, our testimony of who you are and what you've done. That might be used as part of the arsenal that we've been given to preach your salvation. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for your son, most of all. And it's in his name that we pray and we give thanks. Amen.